Okay, let's let's begin with prayer, shall we? Good morning to you all, by the way. Good morning. Our Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together on again on this Lord's Day to um, worship and to, to confess with our lips and with our lives, Lord, that we acknowledge who you are and we know who we are and, and we're grateful that you have stooped low to us in your Son. We're, we're especially mindful that, of that in this season of Advent and I, I pray today in our time together that you will bless us as we press on in the book of of Zechariah, and we ask these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So if you remember last week, we looked um, briefly, our time sort of got away from us, but we looked briefly at, at the crowning of Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 6, which ended this uh, eight-night vision cycle that Zechariah the prophet had, and it was quite a wild ride. I mean, he saw men who were measuring the city. He saw a woman who was hanging out in a basket. He saw a flying scroll. I mean, you know, it's, it made for a, a good evening, I think, all these visions that he saw. And then the crowning achievement of all these visions was the, was, um, was the anointing of Joshua now as a high priest. And why are these issues significant in the book of Zechariah? They're significant because on the far side, again, of Israel's exile, and I don't think we can emphasize enough how significant and monumental that moment was in Judah's history, the southern kingdom's history, when the Babylonians came in, uh, stripped them of their land, removed them into Babylon, tore down their walls, and destroyed their temple. Everything that provided for Judah the, the symbolic order of their universe, the way in which they viewed the world was through the temple. The way in which they viewed the world was through the, through the strategic placement of their walls. And what happens here? Well, what happens is all of that goes away, and there are some significant theological issues that are at play here. Number one, the prophets, namely Jeremiah and the, and the prophets that Jeremiah encourages and he links to that come after him, Zechariah would be one of them. Jeremiah the prophet is, is really speaking into a poorly baked theology in the history of Judah. And it's not a theology, by the way, that did not have Bible verses on its side, um, even though it was half-baked. This is often the case, by the way. Can I, can I hop off the track for a second? Um, it's a little bit unnerving for my students where I teach to realize um, that every good heretic, and there's been some really fine ones in the history of the church, right? But every good heretic has Bible verses on his or her side. Um, and I will tell the students this, and I'm being a little naughty, but I'll tell them, you know, if you, if you want to go down the first road toward Heresyville, start reading the Bible all by yourself without the interpretive tradition of the church. Because before you know it, you'll find some verse that lights your fancy, and you'll begin to, like some news media outlets take very minor things and turn them into massive narratives and all of a sudden you'll you you are now in heresy land um, and this is the case i mean you think about whether it's arius or socinianism in the 16th century and 17th century all of these anti-trinitarian doctrines that ar arose within the life of the church you can understand why these doctrines came around because there are some bible verses that seem to intimate this what do you mean that no one knows but the Father, even the Son. Remember Jesus saying that? I don't know when that's going to happen. Only the Father knows. And you're like, well, hold on now. Aren't you God too? 
Right? So you have Bible verses that raise these kinds of issues. And I'll just go ahead and tell you to lay my cards on the table. Any type of interpretive system that one brings to the Bible, because theology is at its heart a close reading of the Bible. I think people tend to think that theology goes off into some abstract theoretical land, and it can do that and necessarily does do that. But theology is not an abstract land. Theology is at its basic level a close engagement with the mind of the Bible in its totality. And that's the hard work of Christian theology. The hard work of Christian theology is saying, okay, I see that the book, that Proverbs 8 is saying this, and I see that John 1 is saying this, and I see that Hebrews 4 is saying this. I need to do some hard work to think about the ways in which the singular reality about which the Bible speaks comes at that reality in a multitudinous way, in a multi-perspectival way. That's because everyone can find a Bible verse and kind of sit on it. Um, so Christian theology demands a kind of engagement with the entirety of the Bible and the entirety of the, of the Christian tradition, and this is what the prophets are going after. Because the prophets, the false prophets that they spoke against, all of them would have said, just with Martin Luther, and I'm, I'm with him too, Psalm 46 is a great psalm. In fact, it's the psalm by which the entirety of our theological system is viewed. Namely, Zion is a city that's set on a hill and its foundations cannot be shaken. And that's true. Except for, um, as one of my colleagues would say, when it's not. right? Um, and when is it not true? Well, it's not true when Psalm 46 is not located as well in a conversation with the book of Deuteronomy. And what does the book of Deuteronomy say in its covenantal outlay? It says... If I will be your God and you will be my people, but I will only be your God if you are my people. And my presence is not tied to any sacred space in such a way that I don't, I, I can't withdraw my presence. Ask Jonah about that. Ask Ezekiel the prophet who looks at the temple and as he's looking at the temple, he observes the Spirit of God leaving the temple and going out into the wilderness. Zechariah 8, where we are today, is a reversal of that vision of Ezekiel. The Spirit of the Lord leaves the temple, and now the Spirit of the Lord is coming back. And here the prophets are trying to give an account of, of, a, of a holistic view of what it means to live life in covenant relationship with God. Is it true that Zion will never be shaken and ultimately forsaken? That is true. But what's also true is that God demands covenant loyalty from His people because He is a jealous God. He's given Himself to His people and He demands that they in return give themselves back to Him. Now, let's be real clear here about what we're saying. Because this can be read in a kind of works righteousness way. In other words, the prophets are claiming that the Old Testament people had to um, attend to their works for the sake of procuring the divine favor. That's not what we mean when we say that God is claiming covenant loyalty on His people or from His people. What God wants for them is, his, is their devotion. Does that mean that He's looking for perfection? Obviously not, right? A whole sacrificial system is built into the Old Testament worldview and into the Old Testament religious life. Why? Because of the reality that people sin and fall into those problems. As a matter of fact, what is the, the Day of the Atonement witness to? That even for all these sacrifices you make day in and day out during the year, well, they just don't get the whole job done. And in fact, 
sin has this kind of aggregate force within the life of God's people that it needs to be purified both from the sinner and the location of the worship. It's kind of an amazing thing to think about it, but just the mere presence of people being in the temple contaminated it. And by the end of the year, we're going to have to do this whole ritual purification process again and get this place clean. Why? So that we can worship God in spirit and in truth. And next year, we'll see you again. Because the aggregate force will build itself with sin as a pernicious presence within God's people. So you see that kind of move that's being made within the prophets to bring people back to a, to a larger frame of reference in their relationship with their God. And this is where we are in Zechariah chapter 8. I wanted to do 8 and 9 today, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. So can I um, read some of this to you? And we're just going to work through it. It's going to be a kind of a basic outline. Uh, verses 1 and 2 is as the word of, of, um, of God's loyal love and returning. Listen to this. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. Now, I'm reading the NIV, um, which is a fine translation, right? Um, it's, I, I, I grew up in a tradition where the NIV was referred to as the new inaccurate version. I don't think that's true. Uh, I like the NIV. Um, but maybe, maybe not here, actually, right? The Lord is jealous for us, not with a jealous, not burning with jealousy, as it says here, but maybe better burning with anger for her. That, that's a strange, and you can understand why that particular translation, um, you, one might want to skirt around it. Why? Because this is, this is a testimony here and a claim about God's return to his people. What does it mean for him to say that I'm jealous for her? in this sort of loving, loyal relationship, yet at the same time, my jealousy is the kind that burns with anger uh, toward her. Um, well, you know, this is where, again, the Bible forces on us a view of God that has to challenge our preconceived notions of who God is. Going back to my original statement at the beginning, our interpreter approach to the Bible is only good insofar as it allows the Bible's total frame of reference to come and to play with how we conceive and think of God. So God is jealous for His people. He's zealous for His people. And He's zealous for them in a way that's marked by an anger because of their lack of covenant loyalty to them, to Him. Um, I don't know, you know where you sort of put anger on the spectrum of, of a relationship. And I do realize, by the way, I want to be very careful here, our analogies from human interrelationships and human interlocution as that is made into the life of God is a, is a very, very precarious kind of move, right? Um, God is a father. I mean, think about this, this, these sort of notions about Trinitarian life. You might not like this, by the way. I hope, I hope it's okay. Um, God is a father. And so we think about the best of what a father could be in this world, and we, by analogy, move that into the life of God to say that's what God's fatherhood should be like. And the answer to that is yes, but way more no. Right? Yes, he is the best father, I guess, that we could conceive of, but God's fatherhood is marked by God's godness in a way that the creature can never fully witness to that divine reality. At the heart of, a, of Christian theology, and I'm, I'm, I'm a red-blooded, 
Protestant on this issue right here. And matter of fact, call it classic, classically Catholic on this issue. And that is at the heart of Christian theology, as we think about our doctrine of God and who God is, we must maintain a fundamental distinction between the God, the Creator, and the world of His creation, including humanity. The Creator-Creature distinction is a distinction that cannot be bridged. Because God is God, and He's unlike us in way more ways than He is like us. And we use analogies to try to make sense. This is what Calvin calls the doctrine of God's accommodation where God goes to the baby crib of our existence and He goo-goos and gagas for us. That's what Calvin's, he, Calvin's term is prattle. He prattles to us. He did this, you know. I've got a you know, one-and-a-half-year-old girl who's starting to tear our house apart, actually. And, uh, you know, that's what we do with little Mary Grace. I take on a tone of voice that if I started talking to you, that way you think, you know, I, I need to go now. Um, Mary, would you like more Cheerios, right? Do you, this, where's mommy? Where's daddy? Is that papa, right? We do that sort of thing all the time. And, and in effect, these analogies that we use to speak about God in his own Trinitarian life, that's goo goo and gaga. And there's a sense in which it corresponds to reality, but only insofar as it will go. Because God's godness, God's eternal life within himself, what theologians call God's eminent trinity, God's own inter-trinitarian life, is way beyond any social analogies we might think of. Um, and so this is what I think the prophets give us this rather big view of God, but they also tell us that within God's own identity and self-giving with his people, entering into a real relationship in time and space with us, that, by the way, is the conundrum that troubles philosophers to this day, and understandably so. How can an infinite God come into a kind of finite relationship with human beings? It's, it's an enormous issue that we just have to step back and go, I mean, you're ready for a really not great answer? The answer to that is, how does God do that? Well, God does that because He determines Himself to do it. That's, that's how He does it. Because He's God, and, and as, again, if I can quote one of my colleagues, because He's God, and, and He gets to act like that, right? Um, I mean, it's, it's who he is. So he determines himself to be in relationship with us. And part of that relationship is, at least from a bottom-up perspective, a vulnerability in that relationship that at times can be troubling when we predicate that on God. We know what it's like to be vulnerable in our human relationships with one another. We don't know what it's like to be made vulnerable to someone that you make a commitment to. I do. We do. And then you're like, uh-oh, Right? Um, we know what that kind of vulnerability is like, or with our children. And as we understand vulnerability in relationships where we have given ourselves to one another in what can best be termed a covenanted relationship. I am going to be yours, and you're going to be mine, no matter what. right? Um, and there's a vulnerability that comes with that. And in God's giving of himself to his people, there's a vulnerability that comes to that in the very life of God and his self-giving. It's actually, um, can, can I kind of blow the mind. That God gives Himself to His people and His reaction to His people when they, when they go after other gods, when they follow after the other lovers. There's a reason why. The evocative force in the prophets using marital uh, images, adulterous images, the reason why I believe the prophets use this from beginning to the end is because few things touch a raw nerve, a neurologic point in our human existence like that. Talk about vulnerability. When you find that you've given yourself to another and then 
Well, no longer, they're no longer faithful to that commitment that we've made to one another. There's a massive vulnerability there. And that's the image that the prophets tend to use, namely Hosea, to show what that kind of vulnerability looks like. And lo and behold, God has made himself vulnerable with a wife that tends to go toward other lovers. It's, it's opera. I mean, I don't know. How many, it's, it's, uh, it's that kind of scene. Um, and the and, and this is I don't know how you feel about this in your own relationships. And again, I'm careful about using these analogies. I want to give some sort of a nuanced read on this. But um, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing, isn't it, to think that I don't know how you feel on this. But the opposite of of love in our relationships with one another is not um, anger or hatred. Um, you know, can we all just be? Oh, can, you know, am I being recorded here? I guess I am. I hate that part. To be honest with you. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, you, 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 get, you probably have some knockdown drag outs in your relationship and in your, in your marriages. I know we all put on a good front when we walk into the Western together, right? But um, I'm sure, you know, you, we have, and Sunday mornings can be sometimes the worst, right? The devil is active in our house on Sunday morning. I know it, right? I'm trying to get out the door. Um, these sort of knockdown drag But, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm far enough into my own marriage, and I'm sure many of you are far enough in your own marriage. Every once in a while, I like a good fight. I mean, I, I, let's, let's, let's just have one right now. That would be great. No, I'm kind of joking, but it's kind of true. Because the threat's kind of gone now, right? Early on, a lot of threat. Later in your marriage, not so much a threat. It's kind of fun, actually. Um, you can see why I'm not a pastor, right? You can see, um, uh, uh, but... But the opposite, so the whole point, the opposite of love is not the sort of anger or um, a heated moment, a heated exchange, saying things that you wish you wouldn't have said, which we all do. That's not the opposite of love. Um, the opposite of love would be indifference. In other words, I really, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't even care enough to be angry. And I heard one marital counselor say in a public setting one time that, um, you know, the, the worst thing that you can do in your marriage, and I remember thinking, he is off his rocker until I thought about it. He said one of the worst things you can do to a spouse in a, in a, in a marriage is to give that person the silent treatment. And he said, because what the silent treatment is expressing is indifference. I really don't. It's better to curse and yell, Right than to give the silent treatment. Why? Because what you've, in in effect, said is, I really, really don't care if you're alive or dead. It doesn't matter to me. Um, And what God does not do in the Bible is give his people the silent treatment. He doesn't do it. Um, He'll be angry with them. He'll express it in ways that will raise the hair on the back of your neck. He'll express it in terms like divorce and remarriage. He will express that relationship with his people in ways that really kind of make us unnerved. But what we see is the real live dynamic of a covenantal relationship where God has said, I am giving myself to you. And in my giving of myself to you, my, my desired response from you is that you give yourself to me as well. But what the prophets tell us, especially Zechariah, and, and, and the most resounding and most beautiful use of imagery is, but even if you don't give yourself back to me, I'm going to be angry, and my anger is going to be hot, but it's only going to be for a moment. Even if you don't give yourself back to me, I will never, never relieve myself of my covenantal commitment to you. Never. I'm going to be angry with you, but I'm never going to be indifferent to you. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11. The gifts and the calling of God are without revocation. God cannot revoke His calling of His people because to revoke the calling of His people would be to revoke His own self, and He cannot do that. 
because he's given himself in the covenantal relationship with his people. And that's what we have here. I'm jealous for you, Zion, and my jealousy burns with anger for you. But this is what the Lord says, verse 3. I will return to Zion. I'm going to dwell in Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. Now, this is worth talking about here because on the far side of this anger and the dispute between God and His people is a promise that God is going to return back to Zion again. He's going back to the holy mountain again. This is the reversal of Ezekiel's vision of the Spirit leaving. Now, the Spirit comes back. And again, I mentioned it earlier, but it's worth talking about this just for a second because I don't think this is an unnatural extrapolation from the text speaking about the whole notion of sacred space. Um, The temple was sacred space insofar as God gave Himself to that space. But God was never bound by the sacramental structure itself. That's worth saying again. God's giving of Himself to the temple was an act of divine grace and self-giving. But in His giving Himself to be present in the temple as a sacramental medium by which the people actually had had contact with God Himself through that physical place. You read enough of temple theology in the Old Testament, you realize the language that's used about the temple is Garden of Eden. Life in the midst of death. Um, This is God's inhabitation where the heavens and the earth meet. That's why it's up on a mountain, right? Um, So it's very important that God gives himself to the temple, and he does so as an act of divine self-giving, but he's never bound to that place. And he can take himself away from it, and he can remove himself. Um, I think this is important, really, for the ways in which we think about the doctrine of the church, quite frankly. Um, There's something to be said about the doctrine of the church that God can give Himself to institutions where two or three are gathered. God can give Himself to denominations. But He's not bound by the physical structures of our ecclesiastical um, organization. He's not. And He can take Himself away. Now, we trust for His grace that He would give Himself. But we don't necessarily trust in the physical institutions themselves as if they are just raw mediums. God's sacred presence, sacred space, is always an act of divine grace. And when it happens, when He shows up, when He ministers to us by the power of His Holy Spirit, our only response is, thank you. We're grateful. That was a gracious kindness for you to do that. And we expect you to do that. That's your pattern. That's what you do. You do it in ordinary ways through the sacraments and the the preaching of the Word. We expect you to do that. Um, But we also recognize that that is always an act of divine self-giving. God, remember the creator-creature distinction, God is not bound by anything outside of Himself. But He gives Himself to us as an act of divine promise that I will be your God and and you will be my people. Alright, hold on. We've gotten to verse 3. You should be encouraged. Look at what the, the description is of what happens when God returns in this moment of divine self-giving to restore Zion to its former days of glory, which frankly is an intimation and adumbration of what the future will be in the new heavens and the new earth. I love this. 
This is what the Lord Almighty says, verse 4. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with a cane in hand because of their age. And the city streets will be filled with boys and girls laughing and playing there. Isn't that great? Why is that so great? Well, I again, one has to be careful how one extrapolates too much on these things. But I think this is a fair analogy here from this text. What does one expect when God returns to reorder His people to what Zion, to what God's people are meant to look like as a faithful city? You know what it looks like? Normal life at its best. This is something, isn't it? Normal life at its best. No extravaganza. <laughs> it's normal life at its best. It's old men and old women with a cane sitting on a park bench while kids are running around with pigeons and laughing, having a good time. And I think you all have sniffed that before or experienced that before in your own existence. I certainly have. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, said that people often pursue passion with such headlong force that when, I mean, pleasure with such headlong passion that when they come upon real pleasure, they pass right by it. Because we've got to find more, right? I don't know if you've had this experience where you're just enjoying the simplicity of existence. And by the way, those are the images that the prophets tend to use to describe the era of universal peace that we await when God finally consummates His kingdom. What are we doing? We're sitting under our vine, drinking our own wine, eating our own figs. There's no swords anymore. Don't remember what swords are. AK-47s, don't remember what those are anymore. We just sit around and we're what? Old men, old women, kids playing, drinking a glass of wine, eating our figs. And that's good. That's good. I mean, I think that's an enormous... I mean, I, I don't know. We're, we, you know we, we kind of live in a world that seeks... We live in an X-game world, don't we? Right? What's the new extreme pleasure that we can experience? And what that's done in this effort to have more and more pleasure, newer and more new experiences, is it's inoculated us from the ability to enjoy the simplicity of life. Because when the Bible presents the future in a very physical reality in the latter days, when God returns and society is reordered again, what do you see? Kids playing and old men and old women with their canes sitting in peace on a park bench. It's kind of wild, isn't it? Right. Well, this is what the Lord say. It might see, it may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me? Declares the Lord. That's again, and we'll stop there. That's God's word of promise. That's His word of promise to His people. When this all happens, and you're enjoying the pleasures of life, the simple pleasures of life that flow. From and this is so so central to the Christian faith, from rightly ordered desires, from desires that have been ordered toward their end, which is God, and recognizes that all of the good gifts that God gives us in this world, whether it's a football game or a nice meal or family together, or and you could just add to your list exponentially, all these good gifts that He gives us are uses toward that final end, which is enjoyment of God, 
Because if you try to find your ultimate enjoyment in any of those things, you know what happens. It turns to vinegar in your mouth, right? I see this with my kids, don't you? You see it with your kids? I see it with mine. I've got one who's just like, he's just hell-bent on, on just, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? And it's like, you know, man, that, that, you, you've got to just step back and enjoy what's right here now. Because when you try to make your desires and the enjoyments and pleasures of this world that God has given us as good gifts, when you make those as the end, as the goal, and not as means to the goal, which is God Himself, then it all turns to sawdust and vinegar in the mouth. And this is where I think God says, when all of that is reordered, and your desires are properly ordered toward me, and I've returned to Zion again, and it's the faithful city, and old men and old women are sitting on park benches, and kids are running around playing, and you'll think, this is marvelous. That's what Zechariah says. This is great. And I'm going to say, it wasn't all that marvelous for me. I mean, this is, this is my plan for you. This is my destiny for you. What a great thing to hope for in a season of Advent, right? I mean, especially as we're sort of moving into a, into a season that, I don't know, I don't always love it, to be honest with you. It's just busy, right? Um, and here I think we have the prophet giving us a view of the future when God returns to Zion and orders the faithful city again that it's, it's a world that's ordered around the simple pleasures of existence because our desires have been rightly ordered back to God, to God himself. Oh, I have time for one question. Anybody want to bat it around or say something that really ticked you off? Um, anything you want to ask? Doctor? I, I just thought how interesting it was. Just think of the analogy that um, I remember when I was probably uh, growing up, we didn't have a boat or anything, and, and uh, we would have to go out to like Lake Purdy and rent. Uh, a John boat, and we would paddle around and spend over fishing and everything one day. And that was a great time. And then, you know, life goes on and everything, and you find yourself meditation on some huge yacht and everything, and you never have more fun. Even though every boat's a little bigger, and you think, I'm just the next step, the next step, the 16-footer, the 21-footer, the 28-footer, the 96-footer. You never have more fun when you have that little boat yeah. at Lake Purdy. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what the prophet's saying is, um, and, and, and when Zion is reordered, those, there's going to be a lot of John boats. <laughs> a lot of oars, a lot of cane poles. That's all right. That's all right. All right, let me pray. God bless these friends of ours here. And, and Lord, thank you for a prophet like Zechariah that presents this picture of the future, the future time when you, Lord, consummate your kingdom. We already know that you've inaugurated it in the person and work of your son. We're not waiting for something to happen that hasn't already happened. We're waiting for the fulfillment of that which already has occurred. And when it happens, Lord, our desires will be ordered properly. Will you give us intimations of that even now as you reorder our desires toward you and see you as our ultimate good, our ultimate aim, the ultimate joy of the, this life, and that all the goodies that you give us in this world are uses to enjoy you ultimately and finally. And we ask these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.